Friends, let me now invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In this chapter, Paul warns the Corinthians about the dangers of idolatry. The dangers of idolatry. He does this because certain members of the church at Corinth had become proud. They had become proud of their spiritual gifts, their teaching gifts in particular. And because of this arrogance, they could not see the great spiritual danger that they were in. And so Paul warns them, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In chapters 8 to 10, Paul makes it clear that he has two pastoral concerns. One, he was deeply troubled that these teachers were causing weaker Christians to stumble by eating at the temple. And two, they were unwittingly exposing themselves to demonic influences by sharing in the religious meals at the temple. And so Paul tells them in this chapter that the real danger is not the food. It's not the meat offered to the idols. No, the real danger is the fellowship. The fellowship. Those whom God has called into fellowship with His Son cannot fellowship with demons. So look at me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now help us hear your word with humility and faith. We pray that we would take heed lest we fall. Help us see the glory of what Christ has done, that we might delight in His saving blessings by the power of His Spirit. O Lord, teach us to abide in our Savior's love, to be devoted to His Word, and to the precious fellowship of the saints. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, the Muslim holy month of Ramadan has begun. And this year with COVID restrictions easing up, we might see the return of iftar tents pitched near mosques where worshipers can break their fasts over a meal and share in the blessings of Ramadan. Of course, this fasting is profoundly theological. It is meant to be a means to commit oneself to the Muslim God, to earn his approval to exercise self-control and purify oneself from their sins. It's also a time to do works of charity and pray. But what happens if you slip up or you are unable to fast this year? Well, the UAE Fatwa Council has issued a fatwa, that means a religious ruling, unifying the value 
of a compensation worth 15 dirhams to be given as food to poor persons by those who are not able to fast due to old age or illness. On the other hand, if you fail to fast, you must pay the kafara. The council defines the value of kafara. The kafara means expiation, the taking away of that sin or missing fasting. The value of that expiation is fixed at 900 dirhams. This is the value of food to be given to 60 poor persons. In Islam, the kafara is an atonement for the deliberate invalidation of the fast of Ramadan without a valid sharia or Islamic law, without a valid sharia reason. So the kafara provides an opportunity to recompense for individuals who deliberately miss or break a fast during Ramadan without a valid reason. Meanwhile, the value of the iftar meal, that's the meal taken to end the fast, is 15 dirhams. For those who delayed making up the missed fasting days from last Ramadan without a valid reason, the council set 15 dirhams as the value of food to be given to poor persons for each missed day. Now, why am I telling you all of this? All these details. Well, friends, I want you to know that both the fasting and the meals are only meaningful because they are grounded in Islamic theology. And the worshipers who participate in them have shared convictions. The reason Paul warns the Corinthians not to eat meat sacrificed to idols at the temple, and that, that was a practice that was simply part of the Corinthian culture, he warns them not to do that, not because the food was spiritually tainted, but because participating in them at the idol's temple communicated religious solidarity with the worshippers. It communicated religious solidarity with the God being worshipped. Now the temptation to attend these feasts were very real for these Corinthians because of the cultural draw and pressure. After all, this is where everyone socialized. This is what you did as a resident of Corinth. This is where they could rub shoulders with important people. If they did not do this, they would have been viewed as antisocial. They would have lost their social standing. And yet Paul says, don't take part in, this, in these religious feasts at the temple. Even though these pagan gods are not really gods, Paul says, they are demons. There are demons that stand behind the idols of wood and stone. There is real idolatry that is going on. Real idolatry. So don't put Christ to the test by craving what you want. Don't give in to the pressures of culture. It will draw you in to some very dark and spiritually dangerous places. Paul says, think about the people of Israel. Do you remember what happened to them? Think about the destructive consequences of their idolatry. Brothers, he says, look to Christ for grace and you will be able to endure this trial. And so in this passage, Paul reminds us of what Christ has done for us and specifically with regards to eating these religious meals, he tells us, number one, to flee idolatry. That's our first point. Very simply, flee idolatry. Number two, don't dine with demons. Don't dine with demons. Participating in religious meals involves flirting with something very sinister and diabolical. And number three, don't provoke the Lord to judgment. He seems to be saying to these spiritually overconfident Corinthians, watch out. Don't dance on the edge of a cliff and think you won't fall. So did you get an invitation from your non-Christian buddies to eat a religious meal at the temple? What should you do? Well, Paul's answer is, run for your life. Point number one, flee idolatry. Look at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now remember what Paul has been saying. Paul says, I understand that your trial is real. 
but no test, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He will provide you a way of escape so that you can endure this test. So what is this grace that God provides for His children in Christ? Here it is, in the form of a command. He says, flee from idolatry. Friends, God's faithfulness to preserve His children is demonstrated when His children read Scripture, heed its warnings, and respond in faith by fleeing. This is the grace of God at work in the lives of His beloved saints. Brothers, when the saints of God, when your brothers and sisters speak Scripture into your life, when they counsel you, and when they warn you, that's a loving thing. This is what motivates Paul, even as he warns these believers who have put themselves in a dangerous situation. He, he says, flee, my beloved, flee. He doesn't disown them. He identifies with them, my loved ones, he calls them. Flee. You heard what happened to our fathers in the desert with the golden calf, with the Moabites at Chittim, even though they received so many blessings, they walked away from God. They spiritually disqualified themselves. They were judged. So don't be overconfident because of your spiritual gifts. Flee. Did you notice he tells them to flee idolatry just as he tells them to flee sexual immorality in chapter 6? It's the same command. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a members of a prostitute? Take and make? And he says, never. Friends, sex is the act of two people becoming one flesh. But sex is more than just a physical act. It's a profoundly spiritual act. Because our bodies are not merely bone and muscle, we are embodied souls. As Christians, we have been united, body and soul, to Christ our Savior, by His Spirit, through faith. We have fellowship with Him through the Spirit who dwells in us. We have entered into a covenant with Him. The church is His bride, and Paul says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. And so to commit sexual immorality is not just a sin against the prostitute, it's not just a sin, it's not just adultery against your wife if you're married, it's not just unfaithfulness on a horizontal level. It's idolatry on a vertical level. He says, flee. You are committing spiritual adultery against your Savior by taking what exclusively belongs to Him, a communion that is to be His alone, and you're entering into a communion with another. It's an assault on Christ and his gospel, and it stands opposed to the wisdom of the cross. And Paul says, when you sit down at these religious meals at the temple, something equally dangerous is happening. That's why he says flee. Flee. And so Paul appeals to them. Look at verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. I speak to people who are wise people to whom Christ himself is the source of all wisdom, people who can understand the mind of Christ, people who are willing to become fools in the eyes of the world. And he says to them, judge for yourselves what I say. So this is a call to spiritual discernment, something that the natural person cannot do. But these Corinthians could. They had received the Spirit so that they could understand the things freely given by God, words, not words of human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit. And so throughout chapters 5 and chapter 6, Paul calls the Corinthians to judge matters using the wisdom of God in his word. And that's what he does here as well. His words in this letter are words taught by the Spirit to help us understand what actually happens when these Corinthians sit down to eat these religious meals at the temple. And that brings us to our second point. Don't dine with demons. Paul says, I want you to think about 
two other religious meals that you are familiar with. Two other religious meals. You want to understand what's going on at this meal? Well, let's try and understand two other meals that you are familiar with. And the first meal he speaks about is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Now, beloved, I want you to pay very careful attention to what the Holy Spirit says in these next few verses because it will change the way you think about the Lord's Supper. Now, keep in mind, these Christians were grumbling about Paul's prohibition. What's the big deal, Paul? What's the big deal about eating these meals at the temple with our friends? Everybody does it. It's a cultural thing, Paul. The idols are not really gods. Food is just food. But there are plenty of gaps in their thinking. And Paul wants them to think Christianly. And so he asks them a set of rhetorical questions. Look at verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You know, the cup of blessing or thanksgiving refers to a cup that the that a head of a Jewish household would raise at the end of a meal and say a prayer of thanksgiving to God for providing that meal. He would give thanks for God's provision of food and drink. The cup is called the cup of blessing not because the cup is blessed but because the Jews blessed God who graciously provided them with food and drink. And this was also done after the Passover meal. But do you remember what Jesus did? Jesus took this cup and invested it with new significance when he ate the Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus taught his disciples that his death on the cross for the sins of his people was what the Passover pointed to all along. His death and resurrection was the new exodus that would rescue his people from their bondage to Satan's sin and death. And so Luke records for us in Luke 22, verses 17 to 20, what Jesus did. Listen to these words. And he, that's Jesus, took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And friends, this is what we do as Christians when we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do it in trust and obedience to the word of Christ in remembrance of him. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. Beloved, the Lord's Supper is a covenantal meal. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It is a covenantal meal. It speaks to our relationship with Jesus and his people. The elements of the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper signify Jesus' new covenant work. And so in this meal, we get to see the gospel, as it were. The bread reminds us that the body of Jesus was broken for us. He was bruised and beaten. He was put to death on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners. He is the lamb who was slain to take away our sins. His death secures our forgiveness and His resurrection our new hearts. The wine symbolizes His blood that was shed for us. It reminds us that Jesus inaugurated the new covenant in His blood. By His saving death, He secured the forgiveness of our sins. So this meal means something. It means something. And friend, if you're not a Christian, it can mean something for you as well. If you repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus, you too can be seated at the king's table if you acknowledge your rebellion, 
agree with God's assessment that you have greatly offended His honor, that you have ignored His word, broken His law, and betrayed His love. If you repent and turn to Christ and be reconciled to God, you too can be seated at this table. You will be able to have fellowship with the triune God Himself and His redeemed people. Beloved, this is what Christians acknowledge when we come to this table. This is what we acknowledge. Bobby Jameson, in his book on the Lord's Supper, gives us a very helpful and biblical definition that I commend to you. There, there are three books on the welcome table written by Jameson on the Lord's Supper. I commend them to you. They're for free. You can pick them up if you want to read more. So here's what Jameson, here's how he defines the Lord's Supper. And all of you will know this. All of you, by God's grace, will know this. Listen carefully. The Lord's Supper is a church's act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking bread and wine and the believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. This is why I say every time that Jesus Christ purchased every spiritual blessing that we enjoy as believers by His death and resurrection. And when we partake of this table, when we eat this meal, Paul says we participate in the blood of Christ. We participate in the body of Christ. What does that mean? The word participation is the Greek word koinonia. It refers to a sharing a fellowship, a communion. That's why the Lord's Supper is sometimes called communion. When we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we are sharing in the blessings or benefits of Christ's death. It's not that we don't already have those benefits by faith. We do. But when we come together and partake of it together, we are once again reminded from Scripture of Christ's new covenant work and our faith is strengthened. That means we actually do feed on Christ, not physically, but spiritually. We feed on the living bread as we receive His saving benefits by faith anew. We experience His forgiveness. We experience His peace afresh. It's not just a covenantal remembrance, but it's a real covenantal communion with the risen Christ who is in our midst by His Spirit. But it's also a covenantal renewal meal whereby we renew our allegiance to our Savior. And so friends, what we do here is more, it's more than a mere memorial. There's a lot more going on. By partaking of this meal, we commune with Him as members of His body in His presence, along with other believers with whom we have covenanted with, along with others who believe on Him and share in His saving blessings. To partake of this meal is to express solidarity with Christ and other believers that we have covenanted with. To partake of this meal is to express solidarity and unity of belief in the gospel. Now, why does Paul ask this? That's where, that's where we want to get to. Why is he asking these questions? Is it not a participation? Is it not a participation? Well, the answer obviously is yes, it is a participation. It is a communion with Christ and His saints and a sharing of His saving blessings. But the reason he asks this is because Paul wants these Corinthians to understand that by attending these religious meals at the temple, they were participating. They were communing. They were expressing solidarity with pagan beliefs and pagan gods, whether they knew it or not. Paul's point is, if you, being sensible people, can see that all of this is happening at the Lord's Supper, how can you say there's nothing happening at that meal in the temple? Do you get his logic? That's why he's asking those questions. Judge for yourselves, he says. Friends, every religion has its own religious meals. 
In the ancient Near East, harvest festivals were often held in honor of Baal, the fertility god. In the Philippines, you have various fiestas dedicated to patron saints. So think of the Quiapo Fiesta, where the famous black Nazarene statue is carried and paraded around. Or think of the Obando Festival in Bulacan, where childless women participate in fertility dances. Those people who eat at those fiestas are expressing solidarity with a particular belief system, whether they know it or not. Their attendance communicates allegiance. In India, where culture is inundated with Hindu beliefs, various groups offer thanksgiving and worship to different gods for the harvest, and they have religious meals in honor of those gods. And so in Tamil Nadu, people celebrate Pongal in honor of the sun and the moon, and they venerate various farm animals in thanksgiving. Coincides with the harvest, but they attribute thanksgiving to different gods. That's all. Our neighbors, Andhra Pradesh and Telangana, celebrate Sankranti, and they worship the sun god and various other gods in the Hindu pantheon. In Kerala, they celebrate Onam, which is a Hindu festival held in honor of a demon god, Mahabali. Now, I know several people from Kerala who would argue that Onam is just a cultural harvest festival, and there's nothing wrong in the partaking of those meals. Friends, this was the Corinthian argument. This is exactly the Corinthian argument. It's just a cultural thing. Well, tell that to the Hindu theologians who are currently in India debating the finer theological points of Onam. They would be offended if you just said it was just a cultural thing. See, there's a reason why these festivals are held in the manner they are held. There's a reason why they run for a particular number of days. There's a reason why the meals and rituals are held and practiced in a particular way. Cultural behavior and festivals and feasts and traditions are always rooted in belief whether you know it or not. And when you find yourself in a context where this is commonly acknowledged, like these Corinthians found themselves at the temple, where everyone knew these meals were offered to idols, Paul says you are sharing, you are having fellowship with a particular set of beliefs and blessings. Your presence expresses allegiance and solidarity with the message of that meal. But that's not all. Look at verse 17. Back to the Lord's Supper. Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul says when members of a local church come together and eat of the one bread, one bread that is broken, all those members, though many, are expressing unity. They are saying by virtue of their eating of that one bread, they are saying we are one body. Friends, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are communing with one another. You are engaging in covenantal fellowship, not just with the Lord Jesus through His Spirit. We are also communing with one another through His Spirit. Listen to Romans 12, verses 4 to 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and get this, and individually members one of another. One of another. Friends, it is our participation in this meal that makes us one local church, that we all show up and we eat together. It is a family meal. Which is why on January 31st, 2014, when we formally constituted as a church, when we adopted a statement of faith and a church covenant, we also, we made sure we partook of the Lord's Supper together. Twenty-two founding members. By partaking of the Lord's Supper together, we became a local church. We were not a local church before that. We were just a Bible study. But because we participated in the one bread, 
we who were many became one body. You see, the reason Paul mentions this is that he wants these Corinthians to know that their attendance at these religious meals means real fellowship. It means real fellowship with these idol worshipers. Why do you think Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, that when you have an unrepentant sinner in the church, a so-called brother, someone who refuses to repent of his sin, and one of those sins mentioned, by the way, is idolatry, why do you think he says, do not associate, do not even eat with such a one? What does that eating communicate to him? What does it communicate to the unbelieving world about the gospel? But lest you think that, oh, this is something new, as though prior to the Lord's Supper, no one thought that attending religious meals carried so much weight. And Paul says, that's not true. Think about Israel. So here's the second religious meal that Paul wants us to think about. The sacrifices at Israel's tabernacle and the temple. Look at verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What's he saying? He's saying that when the priests offered peace offerings or fellowship offerings, you remember they did this after making burnt offerings for sin. When those sacrifices were made, the priests spiritually benefited from those food offerings. They ate it in the Lord's presence. They had fellowship with the Lord. They benefited from the efficacy of that sacrifice on the altar, from the blessings of that worship. Or think about Exodus 24. After the Lord made a covenant with Israel at Sinai, Moses sprinkled the blood of the covenant. You remember that scene? He sprinkles the blood of the covenant on the people, signifying that they now belong to the Lord. This was the Lord's way of saying that you are now mine. The Lord was setting them apart from the world. He was purifying, cleansing His people, declaring them to be holy to the Lord. They were to worship Him alone. The Lord demanded exclusive worship. And in this way, the people were taught that by the act of a gracious God, through the blood of the covenant, they had been brought to participate in the blessings of fellowship with Yahweh Himself. And this fellowship was visibly, visibly celebrated by sharing a covenant meal. You remember Moses and the elders going up the mountain, eating in the Lord's presence. The Lord was there with them. And we see later in Exodus 34 when the Lord renewed the covenant with His people. He warned them not to make a covenant with the people of the surrounding cultures because it would become a snare to them. And then he said this, listen carefully, Exodus 34, 14 and 15. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, get this, and you are invited and you eat. Don't join religious feasts, says Paul. It will become a snare for your soul. This idolatry will lead you into further sin. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, but Paul, Paul, those people are worshiping those idols, Paul, not me. I don't think of those idols as gods. I give thanks to the triune God when I am there before eating. So the food is not harmful. Now, Paul has already made it clear in chapter 8 that idols of wood and stone are not really God. So what is his point? Why is he so alarmed? What is the big danger? What is he implying? What's he implying? Look at verses 19 and 20. What do I imply then? That's helpful, isn't it? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. This is what Israel did. You remember Chris reading that passage from Deuteronomy 32, verse 17? They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never 
known. Paul says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. When you eat at a religious feast, at the temple, says Paul, you're keeping company with demons. You are in the presence of demons. That worshiper is not really making an offering to that idol. He is unwittingly offering it to a demon. Friends, demons are real. Demons are created beings. They are evil spirits, fallen angels, and Satan is their leader. Satan leads an army of fallen angels. We know that from Revelation, verse 12, uh, Revelation chapter 12. These demons stand behind every false god, every false religion, and they deceive their worshipers. So whether it is humanism or atheism or Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or Sikhism, Scripture is clear about this. The triune God of the Bible in Deuteronomy 4.35 and Isaiah 45.5 declares that He alone is God. Beside Him there is no other God. And therefore in every false religion, demons are being worshipped as gods. And that's not all. That's not all. 1 John 4.1 says that behind every false teacher or false prophet stands a deceiving spirit. James tells us that where sin and unbelief and moral chaos abounds, those are manifestations of something demonic. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 2 to 3, that before we became Christians, we were enslaved to the world. Our flesh and the devil, the world and the flesh and the devil work in harmony to tempt us, to lead us into sin. He tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 that Satan can perform false signs and miracles. He can lead people astray. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 that Satan has a hand in the persecution of believers. Satan and his minions desire to tempt you to worship him, to commit idolatry. Do you remember how Satan tempted Jesus? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. That's his goal. Idolatry. That you will forsake the word of Christ and you will do his will instead. That you will forsake the worship of the creator and turn and worship the creature instead. 2 Timothy 2 verse 26 says that Satan ensnares people to capture them to do his will. And beloved, yet we know that Christ has freed us from our idols. He has freed us from Satan who blinded us from seeing the truth. And because of Christ's victory on the cross, Satan's head is crushed. And one day, Satan's and his demons will be thrown into the lake of fire. We also know that believers cannot be possessed or inhabited by demons because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. but we can certainly be influenced by them. James wrote to Christians, if you remember. Beloved, we are talking about activity in the unseen spiritual realm that we don't understand. So don't be overconfident in your ignorance. But here's why I think we struggle with this. <clears throat> you see, most often when we think of demonic activity, we think of people foaming at the mouth, women with their hair let loose, people with red eyes running around in circles, scratching walls, biting people, speaking gibberish. You know, we think of movies like The Exorcist, or perhaps you think of the demon-possessed man at Gadara living in caves, cutting himself. But we forget that demonic activity can be very friendly. It can be very polite and very civil, just like your average false teacher and your nice, unbelieving friend. Do you remember that nice, demon-possessed slave girl in Acts 16? Oh, she was so nice, wasn't she? 
followed Paul and Silas around. She did some free Christian advertising for them, saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And Paul was greatly annoyed. And he cast out an evil spirit from her. Listen to what Paul says about false teachers. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Did you hear that? People influenced by demons can look like servants of righteousness. Now that is eerie. More than 50 years ago, a pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse once asked, what would it look like if Satan took over a city? What would that look like? Barnhouse was living in Philadelphia. And so he wrote, if Satan took over Philadelphia, are you ready for this? All the bars would be closed, pornography banished, pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. Children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. Now that should send a chill up your spine. What's the command in verse 20? Look at verse 20. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Friends, don't misunderstand the text. Paul is not saying don't hang out with unbelievers. No, he's made it clear in chapter 5 verse 10 that that's a dumb idea. Since then you would have to go out of the world. That would be contrary to the command to go into the world and evangelize the lost. No, this is a call to make a clear distinction between the church and the world. A clear distinction between the church and the world. He's not saying don't hang out with unbelievers. He's saying don't keep company with their gods who are often present at these feasts. Brothers, whatever is a big deal to God ought to be a big deal to us. God demands exclusive love and loyalty. Look at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is a family meal. You either belong to one family or the other. There is no both and, it's either or. Our allegiance is to the one who ransomed us with his own blood. Friends, we have been bought with a price. Christ has embraced us. God has embraced us as sons and daughters. He loves us with an everlasting love. To eat at another table is treacherous betrayal. Friends, God is jealous and rightly so. He is jealous that our desires and delight ought to be to commune with him and no other. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership, participation, fellowship? What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Friends, this is a call for spiritual separation. And that separation ought to be made clear in real life. What causes do you support? Who do you marry? Which religious meal you partake of? Don't miss the point of the passage. 
Don't miss the point of the passage. Paul is saying, when you are sitting and eating these religious meals at the temple, you're not just sitting and eating, you are engaging in idolatry. You are associating with demons. Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking, well, this is not a problem for me. I don't go and eat religious meals at the mosque or the Hindu temple or the Sikh temple or Buddhist temples. Not a problem for me. Not a big deal. But friends, it's not merely about the place. It's not merely about the place. It's what defines the meal. It's what defines the meal. And we know that because Paul talks about this a few verses later. If you look down at chapter 10, verses 23 onwards, here Paul talks about how meat from the idol's temple, meat that was sacrificed to idols at the temple, was sold outside the temple. So now that food is outside the temple. So now what do you do? Paul says when one of your unbelieving friends invites you home for dinner and you go, just eat. Eat that food. Give thanks to God and eat. Look what he says in verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice. Remember, this is idol sacrifice meat sold in the marketplace, bought, cooked, served to you. No problem. Just go eat it. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. Everything was all right until the meal gets defined. Did you see that? This is a fiesta meal. This is an onam meal. This sweet is a prasad. The moment it gets defined, it becomes an issue of covenantal allegiance. That's when you refuse. Not for your sake. We know that it means nothing to you, but for your unbelieving friend's sake, so that he knows that you belong to Christ, so that your witness becomes crystal clear and you do not muddy or blur the lines between the world and the church. So this temptation is not necessarily temple-specific. It can happen anywhere. When you find yourself in a context where what you are eating is well-defined, when it is commonly acknowledged what that meal is, your presence expresses allegiance and solidarity with the message of that meal. And if you dismiss this and go ahead, Paul says, you provoke the Lord. You provoke the Lord. And that brings us to our third and final point. Paul says, don't provoke the Lord's judgment. Look at verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Friends, the Lord is jealous for His glory. And that includes the church He has purchased with His blood. If the church is His bride, then think of this as a marital jealousy. This is how God's love for Israel is portrayed in Hosea and Ezekiel. When God's people forget the Lord and go after other gods, God likens it to a wife abandoning her husband and whoring after other lovers. Brothers, I don't think you will appreciate it if your wife spends an evening flirting with another man and then tells you, oh, it's just a casual chat. What's the big deal? Well, guess what? God doesn't appreciate it when the church sits down at another table and says, no, what's the big deal? It's just food. See, Paul challenges the Corinthians and he says, are we stronger than God? Are you pushing his buttons? Are you challenging him? Are you daring him to act? Are you seeing how far you can go without him acting in anger? Don't provoke his judgment. Now you might object and say, well, that will never happen to us. True believers are preserved by God. We are justified. We will never lose that. We know theology. Well, yes, you're absolutely right. But guess what? True believers also don't go out and make out with demons and put Christ to the test. 
Friends, this comes back to what Paul has been saying all along. Don't disqualify yourself. Don't run aimlessly. Exercise self-control by His grace. Flee temptation. Flee idolatry. Glorify God in your body. Brothers and sisters, every other religion, I want you to think about this, every other religion invites you to their feasts. They say, come, join us, sit at our table, it's an open invitation, join our meals, join our meals. We are the only people, we are the only religion that says, don't join our meals if you're not a Christian. Let the bread and the cup pass you by. Please don't eat of it if you're not a Christian. Why? Why? Because we don't want to provoke the Lord. This is His table. We care about His glory. We care about His holiness. We care about the gospel. It is God who invites us by His grace, by His mighty arm, He saves us and calls us into communion with Him. So there are two tables before you. The table of the world and the one that the Lord has prepared. You can't eat at both. Which table will you sit at? To whom will you swear allegiance? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would love our Savior more than anything else. Father, we confess that our hearts are prone to wander, prone to be enamored by the passing pleasures of the world. So teach us, Lord, to flee idolatry, that our lives may be marked by a pure, and simple devotion to Christ alone. Encourage us now with your sweet presence and strengthen our faith in your word as we partake of your table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.